Welcome to the Nuffield Australia podcast. This first season features recordings from our 2021 annual conference, held for the first time as a digital webinar. The conference featured Australian and international guest speakers, as well as Nuffield scholars exploring four of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. We hope you enjoy listening to the insights from the conference. And welcome everyone to the last session of the National Conference for Nuffield uh, 2021. I'm coming to you from uh, Emerald here today and we've got a cluster of Nuffield scholars uh, that have been afforded the opportunity in Queensland to get together. So such an honour to be able to present to you today and, uh, and I'll be hosting you. So, uh, so congratulations to the scholars that were just announced. It's tremendous uh, effort for everyone involved uh, given the circumstances and uh, great to see that we've got a few Queenslanders there this year. Uh, and we're uh, very glad and, uh, and very humbled to see that, uh, that number of percentage in the, in the national forum. So that's great. Today, our theme is uh, based on the UN Sustainable uh, Development Goals that were developed in 2015. And I just want to peel that a little bit back before we got uh, sort of kicked off here today. Uh, and in doing that, also thank our partner and uh, conference partner and sponsor, the CSRO, for their generous support. And we've got them today in terms of uh, a keynote speaker through Jen Taylor, which is fantastic. But uh, I suppose uh, to give context and a bit of background on those development goals, it's the pressure that we're placing on the globe and, and the responsibility of agriculture to, to, I suppose, address that. To give a scenario on snapshot, there's 7.9 billion people in the world at the moment, the 2021 figures, uh, and it grows by 83 million per year. So approximately 200,000 people per day, or uh, contextualize that further, that's 4,000 busloads per day arriving you know, uh, to, to inhabit uh, the world. And they need uh, food, shelter, and to be clothed to survive and inhabit the world. So as, uh, as the UN sort of sees that uh, as a metric, uh, you know, how do we challenge with 17 sustainability development goals, how we can address that? So today we've got a lineup of speakers. Our uh, sustainable development goal is, uh, is goal number 11, and that's uh, sustainable, uh, cities and communities, and we'll try and relate that back to that theme and topic. So uh, without any further ado, I'd love to present uh, to you Dr. Jen Taylor. Uh, Dr. Jen Taylor uh, in 2016 attended a Nuffield Global Focus Program, which, uh, which was brilliant uh, while she was with the CSIRO. Uh, Jen has been um, uh, completing her honours in biochemistry at the University of Queensland and a PhD in medical genetics at the Queensland Institute of Medical Research, uh, studying gene identification strategies in human diseases. Uh, the, um, uh, and particularly at the moment, Jen is, is charged with running uh, and involved with more than 120 scientists working across a distributed national footprint including eight sites and multiple research stations across Australia. Uh, it's a true honour to have Jen present this afternoon and uh, that'll be followed by a panel session and an introduction to uh, 2019 scholars uh, as they sort of uh, summarise their study and interrelate it to sustainable development goal number 11 from the UN. So, uh, so Jen, uh, I'd like to hand over to you and thanks Ed, for, for um, convening this uh, technology. James, we've just had a little bit of a problem pushing Jen back in as a panellist. So Jen was just going to rejoin and hopefully that will work. So Brilliant. just bear with us for a minute, but we can see Jen's picture on the screen. Okay, great. Brilliant. Thanks, uh, 
uh, thanks, Jody. So, so uh, I suppose just to uh, introduce Jen a little bit more, uh, Jen is, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, in charge of the research component of of the uh, of the um, farm research and and building, I suppose, uh, the capabilities in CSIRO to support agriculture in Australia. And uh, it was particularly interesting having Jen from the CSRO join the Global Focus Program to share her knowledge, but also to connect with the other scholars that are available uh, on that GFP to her to connect, I suppose, the problem solution spaces that, that they might encounter when uh, connected with the CSRO and to escalate, I suppose, the, uh, the research that, uh, that can go on um, and the impact it can create with with the um, uh, you know with that body of work that uh, the government and CSRO put together, so it was a real honour to have Jen uh, participate in that, and I think all the scholars really benefited from from having them there. Um, additionally, what I'd like to sort of share with everyone is is you know Nuffield is great with the research, but it, but it's also a great networking opportunity to to share, I suppose, the problem solution spaces that we that we all uh, uh, are accustomed to in agriculture. And if we can get the academics involved, that's, uh, that's great and the research. So, so I think Jen's back in now, so I won't, uh, I won't talk anymore and uh, we'll try to push uh, Jen onto the presentation role. And, and uh, thanks, thanks very much for joining us, Jen. I'm here, thanks. Thanks, James. Great job uh, uh, <laughs> filling in. Sorry about that, everyone. Right. I, hope, um, I hope I was accurate, Jen, but, uh, but well done. I'll never know. I had to dial out and dial back in, but. <laughs> well, it's so crazy anyway, so, uh, so well yeah. done. No, thanks, everyone. Yeah, and I'll, I'll jump right in, and, and, and what a pleasure it is to be here, and, and thanks very much for Nuffield Australia for, for allowing me to talk to you today, and CSO is obviously very proud to be associated with Nuffield, and it's fantastic to see this conversation going on, already a fantastic conversation. So, um, as James mentioned, um, my name is Jen Taylor and I lead the farming systems portfolio within uh, agriculture and food business of CSRO. Um, and as you probably all know, CSRO is Australia's national science agency and, and really you are all our major customer. Our goal is to create value through innovation for Australia and its industries and, and notably the ag industry. So, um, we, we pride ourselves on, on trying to do that to the best of our ability. And we did an analysis in 2020 and calculated that for every dollar invested in CSRO, that um, there's at least, there's nearly $8 in value returned to the Australian people and its industries. So um, that's wonderful. But as a national science agency, not all our impacts are monetized. So we equally value our roles in, in contributing to science excellence. Um, helping Australia as a trusted advisor and training the next generation in science and innovation. So they're really um, fantastic things that we enjoy. Um, so James already explained a little bit about my day job. Um, so the Cicero Agriculture and Food Business spans 25 sites across Australia. It's highly industry facing and more than 75% of our funds come from outside Cicero through our partnerships um, with government industry and international agencies. So um, personally, I guess through my time in CSRO, which has sort of been 12 years now, and also my association with Nuffield, 
I've become increasingly fascinated with the process of ag innovation, um, uh, how that's successfully achieved. And there's a whole bunch, as you would know, of human and community and technology ingredients in that success. But even more so now, how, how far can we push innovation in Australia to really help us solve some of the challenges that we're talking about today and some of the challenges that are facing our industries? Um, so the focus of this session is a, is a big challenge in of itself, uh, sustainable cities and communities. Uh, how do we make our communities inclusive and safe and resilient and sustainable? So we're already talking a little bit about sustainability and resilience um, uh, in the previous session, but I wanted to think about it in a lens of, of innovation. So um, how do we use innovation to, to continue to meet these, these goals and resilience and sustainability for the Australian ag industry and its communities? Okay, so um, before I get going, I thought I'd be clear on my definition of innovation, because it's a word we hear a lot about these days. Um, and even though I am a scientist, um, a lifelong addicted scientist, when I talk about innovation, uh, I'm not talking about science. Um, science and technology are only small parts of innovation and not even always essential parts of innovation. Um, invention, um, uh, which is technology discovery or discovery in of itself are, are products of science. Innovation, however, is creating a new way of how something is done. It's, it's a achieving a change in the real world and real practice. Um, so innovation therefore may use or deploy a shiny new science and technology, but equally it may not. Um, and there are many types of innovation depending on what is being changed. Um, so the Australian ag industry are constant and really intuitive innovators across many types of innovation. So there are people trying new cost models, finance models, farming processes, governance models. Perhaps you're looking for market innovation, brand innovation, um, diversification. These are, all, these are all forms of innovation. Um, so while science and R&D of the type that we, we are interested in CSRO and in our university systems are not essential to all types of innovation, when R&D is combined with innovation, it can really lead to some dramatic leaps forward in industry and society. And when we're talking about really large and complex challenges of resilience and sustainability and, and things that as we were talking in the last session, may, may even need clearer definitions and measurement. The substantial parts of these challenges probably can only be solved by the types of innovation that really effectively bring together R&D and successful innovation. So um, how is Australia placed to turn R&D into innovation? Um, well, in reality, this is a bit of a mixed bag of strengths and weaknesses for Australia, I would say. Traditionally, Australia does not rank well relative to similar economies for innovation. In 2021, um, the Global Innovation Index, which is an index that, that ranks 
uh, a lot, uh, 132 economies around the world. As Australia ranks about in the middle of 52 similar economies, so 25th out of 52, for its ability to turn R&D inputs into innovation outputs and value. Um, there are a range of reasons for this, so I won't go into them here, but, um, and it's a matter for debate, I guess, the cause for that. Uh, <clears throat> other points maybe to note is Australia's domestic expenditure on R&D as a percentage of GDP is amongst the lowest in that class also. And the what we call the valley of death, which is, I guess, taking R&D across into successful scale commercialization, be that ag tech or SMEs, has always really been immensely challenging to complete in Australia. So that makes R&D and innovation difficult. Um, in an R&D sense, um, Australian research funding is, is immensely competitive. Uh, we have world-class research institutes, but success rates for domestic research funds is, are very low, less than 10%. And um, funds really no longer cover the true costs of the research. And that often leads to slicing and some less ambitious research targets. Um, so it's a tough game. Um, and I guess to some degree that's that's expected in any endeavour industry. But particularly now, um, given the challenges that are ahead of us, uh, a rethink of our approach is required. And there's, there's, a, there's a fair bit of debate about how we position ourselves to do that. Um, funding is certainly not the, not the only issue. Um, Australia has quite a fragmented um, R&D sector and uh, successful, it's important to note really that successful R&D really does rely on collaboration across sciences and institute boundaries because it relies on building creative and integrated uh, solutions. So that requires collaboration and fragmentation, either due to competition or a sort of industry sector focus, really can work against effective R&D and effective delivery to industry. However, that's probably the, the bad news. So I'll, I'll share with you, I guess, some good news. And, and that is that we're constantly reminded that when, when good R&D is connected, it, it really has stunning power to address increasingly complex challenges. And uh, I'm not sure if the word COVID is banned from this workshop, but I haven't heard it yet. So I'm gonna break that, sorry, Jody. And, um, just point out a bit of a lesson from COVID that I found quite inspiring. And um, in, in January 2020, as we know, the world was challenged to vaccinate against a virus it had never seen. And it was a category of virus that had never yet been successfully vaccinated against, despite decades of trying. Uh, the last vaccine to be de newly developed was polio. It took four years to develop and five decades and still counting to deploy that vaccine. COVID science developed a new vaccine strategy in under 10 months and now 22 months in, I checked the stats yesterday, 3.7 billion people, which is 48% of the entire world population has been vaccinated, which is still a ways to go, but a stunning, stunning achievement. So what, so what happened? Um, 
Well, in, in an hour and sense, it was unprecedented. It was a really laser focus on solving a shared challenge. There was immense urgency. There was a removal of all collaboration barriers. It changed the what science was done. It changed how the work was funded. Almost immediately, there was unprecedented data sharing um, across the whole research community on how to solve this challenge. The, how the work was being published in scientific literature changed because they knew that, that the work had to be fast and accurate. Um, scientific journals actually globally fast-tracked peer review and verification of COVID science and delayed peer review of a lot of other publications and topics. Um, so all that happened behind the scenes and, and this amazing result um, came about. So other folks are asking, uh, why not now the same approach to these sustainability development goals or, or other issues facing us, tough issues facing us? So I just told that story because I'm not suggesting we need a national pandemic to restructure our R&D and innovation system. However, there's, there's a lot of optimism and reason for hope that once we get the key ingredients for that right, there really can be rapid and successful innovation. Um, so I wanted to share with you, I guess, two stories or two activities that are now emerging that are really starting to access these concepts um, and try and bring a unified R&D and innovation system behind a few large challenges in Australian agriculture. Um, so the first one I wanted to share with you is, was a little bit of a model um, that we're trying. It's called a venture science model um, called company creation. And um, as we all know, to successfully deliver R&D to innovation, you need several things. Um, you need new science and technology that addresses a real industry need. Uh, secondly, there needs to be partnerships across the whole technology delivery chain to deliver that technology at scale. And finally, you need a market and an adoption pathway that, that you can successfully and responsibly embed that innovation into the industry. And traditionally things would be done in that order. You'd, you'd do your science, you'd have your eureka moment, you'd then go out and try and find a venture fund company, um, and then you'd try and build enough um, capital to take that to market. Uh, so this traditional approach was really failing at the second hurdle and leading to large gaps in the R&D translation when that venture capital was struggling to make the connection with those early stage investments in R&D and a lot of tech was getting orphaned at that stage. The venture science model works that backwards. So this starts with an understanding of the market first and the opportunity. It then goes back and builds the partnership, including investor venture investment at a second. And then that venture partnership creates a company um, that goes about the required science last. So this reverses the traditional model and the strength of the venture science model is the partnership, the partnerships that form between the existing industry partner, the research investor investment, and, and this partnership guides and resources the science required to innovate and bring value to the market. So no valley of death, it's, it's essentially removed. Um, 
So this was how the plant-based protein company V2 Foods was created as a partnership between Hungry Jacks as the industry partner, CSRO as the research supplier and Main Sequence Ventures, which was the um, venture investment fund. Um, V2 Foods is now a, a $0.5 billion company. Uh, so it's quite a successful model for that. Uh, similarly, Future Feed, um, low emissions livestock feed company was formed as a company creation model and, and that raised $13 million in investment last year. So the model's rapidly growing. Main Sequence Venture, which invested in both of those, has recently completed a second fundraise, um, $250 million, and is this year we'll be launching another four uh, venture science companies. Um, so the model is a whole of system approach and it takes support from every part of the innovation system, industry, investors, research and government, and um, provides a partnership that really accelerates innovation. So the second mechanism I briefly wanted to share with you is also another whole of system approach. And, and that's the program of missions that CSRO has recently launched. And, and most of you may have heard of this. And, and missions are, are broad collaborative research programs designed to help address big challenges. And they aim to provide that really kind of COVID style laser focus on a challenge that really pulls together cross-sector, cross-industry collaboration to, to solve this as rapidly and efficiently as possible. In September last month, CSRO launched three ag-facing missions, um, the Drought Resilience Mission, the Future Protein Mission, and the Trusted Agri-Foods Exports Mission. Um, and these all target quite different problems, but they all share a common approach, which is a strong focus on developing science after deeply understanding what the industry and market requires. And most importantly, a partnership and a collaboration that spans Australian research boundaries, industry and government from day one. So um, I don't have time to go through all three of them, but if, if you want to find out more, then, then please reach out. I'll just give you a bit of an example from the Drought Resilience Mission because it it fits in with SGDG 11, um, which has a goal around disaster risk reduction for communities. And <clears throat> we know, I guess, what's in front of us in terms of um, predictions, climate models going forward. And uh, I guess the drought resilience mission has an aim to reduce the impact of drought on our farmers and regional communities by 30% by 2030, so in the next decade. Uh, some, how are we going to do this? Um, well, there's already some science and tech on the shelf that we can bring to bear. Um, things like new deep sown wheat um, that are already being trialled, better capture of deep moisture for emergence, uh, early to late sowing, um, highly efficient irrigation technologies through canopy temperature monitoring, improved weather forecasting, these sorts of things. Um, bringing that all under the one umbrella of the mission, but also things like um, storing water underground or water banking. Uh, there's new technology to map potential sites for managed aquifer recharge and to identify where we could store really large amounts of water in natural aquifers for use um, by communities and by industries in, in periods of dry. Um, 
so that there's some exciting technologies coming through in the missions. Um, but to wrap up, um, I'll just say that addressing the big challenges to achieve our goals for resilience and sustainability, there is science well underway. However, to achieve the innovation required is, is going to take a bit of a rethink, perhaps on how we utilise the whole of our innovation sector and how we build those partnerships, research, government, investors and industry together. Innovation takes a community, it takes thinking through delivery partnerships alongside or, or even before the science is, is done. So, um, I can I encourage you to continue to look for ways to be involved in, in things that, that are happening out there in R&D and innovation. And if you want to know more about any of the activities I've spoken to about today, uh, have a look at the CSRO website or, or just shoot me an email. That would be great. Thanks again for the chance to talk to you today and back to you, James. Yeah, that was, uh, that was absolutely tremendous. And uh, you can just see the value of what that uh, involvement in 2016 was with the GFP. All the, all the narrative and everything you discussed was actually quite um, on point and impactful, you know, sort of practical on ground, uh, you know, application of research and science. And I just commend you on that presentation to begin with and uh, like to delve into it further. I'll let everyone sort of digest everything. I've, I need more paper to take notes on what you were discussing just then. So well done. But I've got a few questions for you later. We might just throw into the 2019 scholars just to give a recap of their, their study and, and just talk to us a little bit about, about their research today. And, and uh uh, so, so we've got to line up uh, three panellists today. Christina Kelman, who's on the program, uh, can't join us, unfortunately. But yeah, we've got Renee Anderson, Frank Miller and Anthony Close. And uh, yeah, I'd just uh, like to introduce Renee Anderson as our first panellist. Uh, Renee's uh, social licence to farm, improves social, environmental and economic sustainability. Renee's an irrigation farmer from Emerald in central Queensland. Throughout her time as an agronomist for 20 years, Renee has observed many barriers to adoption. Uh, of better environmental management practices on farms. So Renee's been researching and exploring the opportunities uh, to, to, to break down those barriers. And uh, we've been very, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, privileged to have Renee join us at this cluster up here in Emerald. So Renee, if, uh, if you're ready to join in, we'll I'll pass on to you now and, uh, and thanks very much. Just be a two minute uh, coverage of what Renee's been up to and we'll hold questions till after that. Thank you for allowing me to join as a panel member. Um, my name is Renee Anderson. Thanks so much, James. Uh, food and fibre producer also here on the Central Highlands and farming on those soils that Stuart mentioned can be a little bit tricky. Those heavy cracking clays or self-mulching vertisols, we like to call them up here. Growing mung beans, cotton, chickpeas, wheat, and popcorn under irrigation and um, the last five years uh, with this very dry weather, quite often semi-irrigated situations. Uh, 2019 Nuffield Scholar, and I'm so grateful to the Australian cotton industry, both the Cotton Research Development Corporation and Cotton Australia for supporting my um, travels and my scholarship. It's an industry that I've spent my whole um, study and work life working in. So, and it was a driving factor of my study topic. I travelled across 15 countries in 15 uh, week period across 2019 and 2020. And I happened to be in California when COVID hit the, the East Coast and did a very quick um, trip back to Australia. 
So my study travels um, focused on three aspects that influence social license. That is best management practices, communication, and the barriers to adoption. So social license at the very basic level is about trust. And it's very much driven by our ability in agriculture to so show transparent evidence of continual improvement in each of the four pillars of sustainability, which include the, the human, social, environmental and economic factors. It requires honest engagement with the general public, our consumers, our key stakeholders, and genuinely listening to their concerns and finding alignment with our core values. My key focus was looking at diverse and resilient agricultural systems globally that reduce the risk of the impacts to our businesses, the environment, our employees and our communities while minimising carbon emissions, energy use and climate change risks. So some of the key learnings that I found was sustainable agriculture, as we've heard all day today, is an accumulation of regionally suitable, multiple on-ground evidence-based practices that continually improve through knowledge gains and through research with an essential focus on improving biodiversity and soil health. And if backed by really strong extension teams, they have a much higher uptake of success. The other thing that I really found across every country was best management wasn't limited to or exclusive to one farming system type. Investment and collaborative R&D between industries, education and training and connecting different people, whether that's through formal, informal or upskilling and finding gaps and investing in people to adopt change towards better practice was absolutely vital. Peer-to-peer -peer learning is one of the most effective ways to engage other farmers and encourage best management practice adoption. And agriculture really needs a genuine move beyond what often seems like crisis management driven adoption to consistence and continual sustainability goals as the next drought, which we're still going through here, um, and uh, the next global pandemic is possibly just around the corner. So planning for those future crises is absolutely key. Um, I found financial incentives are not always a key driver. However, those collaborative investments and um, between different stakeholders absolutely drive sustainability goals to happen a lot quicker on farm. So how does my project fit within SDG 11? So one sustainability target that's often overlooked is that human and social um, sustainability and community engagement. And COVID has really highlighted this to me over this last um, 18 months to two years. Social sustainability and responsibilities certainly isn't limited to on-farm and it includes our social behaviours, responsible environmental and social norms for everyone along the whole entire supply chain. Inclusive, fair, resilient communities and workplaces where everyone has a voice and we click quickly and um, we quickly address and respond to their concerns. Creating opportunities for all people, addressing inequality and empowering our communities, our farmers and employees, and continue to encourage and support people to be drivers of their own solutions, both on farm and off farm. Resilient communities also allow access to all basic human rights with a focus on reducing poverty, gender imbalances and creating safe spaces and housing for societies today and into the future. SDG 11 
is significant. It's comprehensive and really complex goal to work towards um, creating sustainable cities and communities that can withstand both climate change and unprecedented population growth and providing clean and stable water supplies, green spacing, good air quality, and including the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, which unfortunately cities contribute to about 70% of. These urban communities are often prone to the impacts of natural disasters as they predominantly lie across the coastlines. And so that's a huge risk to their power, their water supply and their food supply. So planning is absolutely essential. And as Tamara mentioned yesterday, the transformation towards resilient and sustainable agriculture and communities is going to re um, require the redesign of our cities looking forward, even our farming systems, as well as a considered shift in our patterns of production, consumption and our waste. So it comes back to reduce, reduce um, reuse and recycle. Thank you. Renee, well done. That's uh, that's brilliant. Great to see some done some research on SDG eleven, and uh, yeah, I agree with the sentiment in terms of uh, you know why do we always respond to uh, to crisis and not a continuum of, of improvement? So so yes, that's great. And the theme that Jen shared as well. We might go on to we might just hold questions for you for for uh, till the end there, uh, Renee, uh, and. Uh, uh, I suppose Frank, we'll we'll jump into you now if that's okay, and and uh, and get you cracking. I, I realise you're in Tasmania down there, but just to introduce Frank, uh, Frank Miller is a 2019 scholar, um, and his research uh, sort of theme is adding value and attracting investment to Northern Territory timberland. So it's quite an interesting, uh, uh, you know, sort of area of, of study. Um, Frank is a 2019 NT scholar that has been exploring the relationship between timber, forestry, and agriculture, realising the slowing of the investment of plantations in Northern Australia and how do we address that? So Frank, I'll throw it to you now and thanks for joining us. Thanks, James. Um, yeah, it's good to be here and it's nice actually to have some cooler weather given that's the build up in the Northern Territory. So um, yeah, so as um, as James highlighted, uh, my, my, my study topic was around attracting investment and adding value to the Northern Territory timberlands. Um, one of the key, I, I work for a, a forest manager who manages assets on behalf of international institutional investors. And um, we'd seen a slowing of the expansion of our um, activity through, um, from investment and uh, the growth of the estate. And um, I, I sought to investigate what are the key drivers around um, uh, some of the institutional investment um, uh, invest, investments globally. Um, and also looking at um, looking at post forest gate um, valuating. So I, I guess uh, there were two aspects, there were investment barriers and, um, and valuating and, and both pre and post forest gate valuating. So um, I, I went round and I discussed issues with institutional investors in the US and that's um, a, a primary hub for international um, timberland investment. Um, and it was it became pretty clear to to me that um, we're no longer um, looking at simply land and timber production in international investment where uh, they're looking for um, non-forest um, values and uh, non-forest values that both offer um, both both offer um, investment performance and ESG credibility so um, they had a number of investors um, that 
were saying to them, we yes, we it's nice to get potentially two percent um, increased internal rate of return for your investment, given that um, if you get uh, carbon, for example, uh, uh, recognised in your investment. However, um, we also want to ensure that the environmental credentials for our investment is is recognised, um, and so it. It was quite clear to us that um, the in Northern Australia, um, our, the species that we manage up there in plantations were ineligible for for carbon uh, for carbon credits. So uh, that was that was um, a clear barrier that I identified. And then after that, um, looking at um, pre forest gate um, value adding, and I've integrated um, grazing within our estate. So I looked at um, integrated integrated management systems globally to to see if um, they they could be commercialised um, at at scale um, through international uh, um, larger institutional investment. Um, we graze around about five thousand head on our estate. Of, um, of cattle and um, it's purely a uh, an organic system that, that uh, organic in the in that I've built it organically um, to reduce um, herbicide use um, fuel reduction for fire protection and, um, and and it was quite clear that there was interest in that so um, I guess uh, you know, coming back into Australia, one of the key things I've done is um, uh, been able to get our species eligible for carbon credits. And as everyone would be aware online, um, carbon is now uh, not just um, a catch cry on people's lips, but it's actually happening. Um, we're now seeing since uh, the, in the last 18 months over a doubling of the uh, ACUS price. Uh, the last um, auction um, fetched $28 a tonne. So that... Um, uh, that clearly says that there's um, uh, opportunities for not only um, forestry companies, but uh, and one thing that I really want to emphasise in this forum is that there's opportunities for for all land managers to ensure that um, you know there's there's an integration opportunity to plant trees on farms, and and then I guess. Uh, uh, Going into what all, how, how does this all integrate into SDG 11? Well, um, you know the the quality of life, the um, air quality, and um, and green spaces in urban um, uh, urban areas are incredibly important important. And um, as James alluded to, um, when you've got 40 busloads of people um, coming onto the earth on a daily basis, um, it is really um, important to see where that land's going to come from. And quite clearly, it's going to um, result in a lot of deforestation. So, how do how do we offset that that those sorts of developments and ensure that um, uh, the, these populations are sustainable? And um, and yeah, so I, I guess I could go on for, for a long time, but uh, some of the some of the things that I've done is um, yeah created a hub so that we're now eligible to plant um, African mahogany and get carbon credits. And quite clearly, there's uh, there's now an appetite to do that. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a very worthwhile venture in undertaking this, um, undertaking the scholarship. Frank, thank you so much. That's uh, very impressive uh, what you what you've already sort of achieved since you've been back. So, uh, I think uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's tremendous. The um, 
uh, I suppose the discipline and the uh, conviction you've got in this space. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very important to integrate that with agriculture and uh, make a meaningful narrative out of it all and, and pull together those, uh, those business models that actually work. Uh, and I think, you know, I think there's a bit of a theme here about, you know, uh, developing various di different business models to, uh, to, to address, you know, the growing global population in agriculture and, you know, just not applying traditional business models, actually being innovative with it. So, so that's quite great. I might hold, uh, hold uh, the questions for you to, to the end, Frank, and, and jump into uh, Anthony, but thank you very much for joining us from down there in cool Tassie. Uh, quite jealous of you, the climate down there at the moment. So, uh, so well done on uh, on getting down there. Anthony, I'd, I'd just like to um, introduce you on. Uh, Anthony is sponsored by AWI, which was my sponsor in 2012 as well. Uh, they're, uh, they're seeing some great growth in that industry at the moment. So, so well done to everyone there. Anthony studied uh, ways the Merino can again become a feature on the farming landscape. So, uh, so as a 2009 scholar, um, Anthony's from Colo, Colo, is it? Colo. Yeah, Colo. In Victoria, uh, and as, as a mixed livestock producer, uh, was researching the prominence of the Merino sheep in the Australian landscape and how to accelerate, you know, the reintroduction or the uh, the regeneration, if I can, um, if I can sort of throw to that term. So, Anthony, love to uh, hear your sentiments, and uh, yeah, we'll uh, uh, try to be prompt so that we can uh, have some good questions and answers and, and engage the audience. Thanks, Anthony. Yep, no worries, James, and uh, I'll sure I'll sure I'll make it nice and sharp here. Um, so, howdy, everyone. Yeah, name's Anthony Close, as James said, and I'm from uh, Western Victoria. That's where colour is, James, out near uh, Hamilton, the SA border. Um, and I'm involved in a family farming business called Karawira, where we run a, a mixed sheep and cattle operation, as well as doing some seed, do seed stock in both of those. Um, my scholarship was supported by AWI, same as James's, uh, to research ways that the Merino can once again become a prominent feature in the Australian farming landscape, uh, or as I captioned it, make the Merinos great again. Um, so in my travels, I aim to get the three main things that would turn the industry around. Um, so the first one, and I'll actually just touch on what Jen spoke uh, about earlier because it was really uh, hit home with me about um, our fragmented R&D and the need for collaboration to make it work and how yeah, fragmentation in R&D sort of makes it underperform. But when R&D is done really well, how powerful it is. So my first recommendation was um, around the sheep industry structure and that I actually recommended that we split the sheep meat off MLA and bring the sheep meat and wool industry under one R&D roof to create a sheep industry body that's solely focused on sheep and the sheep producers. Um, the second recommendation was around the way we market our wool. Um, yeah, wool's the sort of the fundamental difference we have as a merino producers. Um, so I recommend that the wool brokers needed to do more marketing and change the supply chains to more long-term contracts uh, between producers and brands like they have in New Zealand uh, with the New Zealand Merino Company, which is backed by ZQ, a QA program, to uh, assure the customers of their environmental, social and animal welfare statuses. Uh, the third recommendation was around getting some new technologies that could help make the Merinos great again. Um, and they were a foot rot breeding value that they had in New Zealand, and as well as some virtual fencing. Um, both of these technologies are still in their early days, um, but with some more investment and effort uh, could really have a dramatic impact on the sheep industry in the future. 
since I returned post Nuffield, um, I've been reasonably involved in industry and helped out with the Wool 2030 strategic plan, um, which, yeah, it was a really great space post Nuffield just to, you know, like unload all the stuff and thoughts that I've had in my head um, over the travels uh, into a positive way for the industry going forward. So, so that was a really um, enjoyable um, thing to do. And linking it to the to the SDG there to finish off, um, I would say it's probably around supply chains and and the impact they have on everyone in them. Um, you know, disruptive supply chains can cause havoc um, and increase the risk across the whole uh, supply chain. So having a really strong, reliable supply chain gives people and communities stability, um, which makes their businesses safer, resilient, and more sust uh, sustainable long term. Thank you. Brilliant, Anthony, uh, and thank you so much for your presentation. There, it's uh, it's, uh, it's 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 great to hear a fellow AWI scholar, um, you know, sort of uh, get to go and get a global view on the industry and textiles. So, so it's great to see your growth in that area. I've got a few panel questions now, and, and I see Jen, you've already uh, answered one in the in the Q and A section. Oh, you couldn't hold yourself back, which is great. Uh, but I might just, uh, I might just, I might just pick that one up for everyone. So it was from Mark Swift. Uh, who was a 2012 scholar as well. Jen, do we also need to build out risk management protocols for governments if promoting, mandating novel products and strategies at scale and rapidly that are cognizant of the tail risks where they exist? Very eloquently put there, Mark. And uh, I might just get you to, uh, to address that uh, for the audience uh, verbally, if that's okay, Jen. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was a great question from Mark and it, it really is and it, it reminded me a little bit of what Duke was saying in that sometimes we do um, not support our early adopters as much as we could and, and, you know, the innovation cycle really needs early adopters. So, you know, I think managing those risks is, is an important part of, of what we should do. Um, but also providing a lot more um, informed, um, well, allow enabling informed risk taking so for the true explorers out there that want to adopt things just making sure that they they really have the trusted advice that they need to to try and explore that option um as well but yeah i, I guess it depends i'm sure that i expect there are certain instances where maybe even more um support for those tail end risks um would, would help drive things um and i have you know we have we have been talking a little bit um with the department about you know they they're really keen on driving adoption and then all the RDCs also are really keen on driving adoption so i think you know this issue will definitely come up um i haven't heard of any solutions yet though i'll, I'll confess but i i think it, it is an issue that's worth discussing Brilliant, Jen. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I like how the, uh, you know, how the venture science model has flipped uh, research and it's commercialising it. I think it's brilliant. Another, another question I had to throw to you was actually uh, in terms of, uh, you know, farming and agriculture is very innovative and, you know, there's extreme inventors in the agricultural space. Uh, so have you come across many, uh, I suppose, uh, farmers or partners, you know, farming partners that you've got in your projects? That are actually engaging with R&D tax incentives for for their innovation and research. Uh, I'm not sure if you you're aware of that scheme or well, scheme or tax setting, but uh, but yeah, it's it's quite a good accelerator and enabler for uh, commercialising research. Uh, but uh, that if if not, you can take that question on notice and uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I 
I'm not aware of any um, <clears throat> producers or growers, but certainly um, some of the SMEs and um, mid-tier companies that we deal with, yes, absolutely. And, and you know, we often they, they feel they want to grow their market through innovation, but they're not exactly sure how. So then it's a conversation really around the market that they want to occupy and then working back to the innovation and then having a conversation of, if they need some science and technology, what might that be? So, you know, I, I think so people involved in R&D can also play that role, a, a little bit of, of talking through innovation from our awareness of what's available. Uh, yeah, so limited experience, but yeah, I think, I think that's one way to go. I think other ways of using the market to um, pull funds back into the R&D sector is, is also another way. Right, Jen. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think well, naturally, you know, uh, farmers are doing trials all the time and, and exploring that. So, it might be worth uh, exploring that a little bit more uh, offline. But, but uh, a uh, another question I might just pose that to Renee uh, that we've got is um, how can we reduce energy costs, which in Australia contribute to seventy percent of the greenhouse gas emissions in urban communities? To Renee. Sorry, what was that question? I oh, sorry. Yeah, I just had a question uh, directed to you. Uh, how can we reduce energy costs, which in Australia contribute to 70% of greenhouse gas emissions in urban communities? In urban communities, I definitely think the, um, the, the green spacing is going to play a huge role in our cities. And I've really noticed it during the lockdown periods uh, with COVID people are looking forward to getting out of their houses. It cools their, their home lives. So the, the research shows that tree-lined streets have up to 10 to 15 degrees um, cooler. So using less energy by having those green spaces, which although use water, they're quite efficient at reducing other energy inputs as well. So I think that's going to be something that we need to be looking at, not just in urban communities, but also on farm as well. Um, we, there's some really good research that shows using shelter belts um, helps protect those soils, keeps them cooler, uh, creates a, a much better environment for the um, microbiome sort of within that space as well. So I think that's, that's something that is going to be really important in future planning in those urban communities. Absolutely. And as a you know, scholar in 2013, when we were traveling, uh, we went to China and some of these uh, cities and communities are built on amazing agricultural land, just like Silicon Valley is. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting to see the, uh, the Chinese actually in those uh, green belts plant, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, trees and, and, you know, plant varieties that actually grow, grows food. Uh, I just couldn't believe the, you know, the foresight there. So great opportunity to sort of uh, do that as a, as a combination. Uh, Frank, I suppose uh, I might throw to you now and, and sort of, uh, you know, the, the timber prices at the moment in, um, you know, in Australia are going through the roof post COVID and the building requirements are going through. Have you got uh, much of a, um, uh, you know, a view on, on where that will be headed and, and where, we're sort of, where we're sort of going there? Yeah, well, um, what, we're, what we've seen now is um, uh, exports to China have exceeded um, uh, domestic 
uh, domestic supply. So we now got a timber shortage. We've now um, had a shrinking um, plantation estate nationally. And um, that's uh, been for a number of reasons. Obviously, a lot of uh, repatriation of um, former MIS uh, plantations that were, were put in in the early 2000s. And um, I think there's, there needs to be a complete reset of how we see uh, the services of um, plantations um, and how that fits into um, different economic models. So uh, one of, one of the um, biggest issues around MIS, and I mean, if you looked at um, the policy lever to get a lot of trees in the ground very quickly, it was fantastic. Unfortunately, a lot of the decision makers got greedy and they made very poor decisions about what species went into the ground in what place at what scale. Um, and a lot those, those three critical things were um, uh, went awry. And, and I think that if we um, look at longer rotation crops like pine, which is obviously a, the dominant um, building material that we use in Australia, um, we need to ensure that things like natural cap capital and carbon um, can carry those crops to a longer rotation to ensure that long-term building material, long-term supply of building materials in Australia um, uh, can be achieved. Um, because uh, one, there's, there's quite a few things about pine that's um, uh, attractive and that's, it's well-researched. We, we've been growing it long, far longer than a lot of our hardwoods uh, in Australia um, in a, as a plantation species. It's not as fussy in relation to rainfall and land land quality, so we're not going to see that battle between high high quality agricultural land and and uh, and and trees being planted on that land. Um, and and I and I also think that um, if 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 we make sure that there's a cultural shift in understanding the importance of plantations. Um, we're going to avoid um, the emergence of substitute, substitute products. So one of the um, interesting things that I heard this morning was that a managed forest um, sequests more carbon than a locked up forest. Now, that is in context of ensuring that the, the trees sequest the carbon while it's growing, the carbon is stored in the timber, the timber offsets high carbon using materials like steel and concrete, and then byproducts from the tree can go into a biofuel or a bioenergy type system. So as a whole system, it's far better having a managed forest than a completely locked up forest, which right. eventually will actually reach a quick equilibrium of, um, of sequesting carbon anyway. So right. um, yeah, the, the, the timber prices is not going to go away. Um, very interestingly, the, um, uh, the, the, the building scheme that um, Scott Morrison released um, pre-COVID uh, was expected to build 20,000 houses. Uh, there's now um, 120,000 permits for those houses where they're all under construction, and it is expected that 200,000 houses will be, be built under that scheme. So right. where the materials and where the skills are going to come from from that is, um, is going to be a real challenge. And obviously, I think that anyone's looked at um, farming farming equipment or vehicles or anything, we're actually seeing a real backlog of supply and, and timber is going to be no different. So, um, yeah, the industry um, is facing a lot of challenges. And one of the um, first and foremost ones I can see, and I'd love to get um, a lot of people in agriculture thinking about it, and that's ensuring that the forest industry um, avoids the same reputational damage that we had through MIS. 
um, um, through the, the the new realm of carbon and 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 um, uh, natural capital accounting. They are truly interesting insights, mate. I uh, I wish we could go on longer, you know, exploring that. What I'd do would be encourage all the audience there to actually connect with Renee, Frank, Anthony, and Jen post this conference. It, you know, we're going to be posting to the audience the presentations, but I'd you know I'd really encourage people. You know, Nuffield is about networking and solving problems together and gaining better insights and, and transferring knowledge between each other. So I wouldn't limit it to, uh, you know, just this conference. I would actually explore, you know, those relationships further. We've got some thank yous to, to do for this conference and uh, particularly everyone that's presented, uh, we, you know, we'd like to thank them, the new scholars, and I'd like to introduce uh, Rob Bradley to close out this conference. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, James, for your uh uh hosting of this afternoon's session it's been uh, fantastic so it's been a wonderful conference um certainly like to you know reiterate the the thanks that we've had for rabo uh and Cesaro for their support of our virtual conference this year and also the addition of um both having speakers in in, in terms of lachlan and jen this afternoon their contribution's been fantastic um i certainly like to say thanks to our executive team jody and nicola who are sort of peddling the bicycle behind the scenes and making sure everyone pops on, up on screens at the right time and uh, that we all look uh, respectable, even though we're probably in uh, different settings all around the, all around the country. So thanks, Jody and, and Nicola, it's been fantastic. Um, thanks to the, the 2019 scholars. We've, we've asked them several times now to uh, front up and do some virtual presentations. So much appreciated. And um, we hope to actually see you present in person and in one point in time in the future. And our session chairs, we've certainly gone back and found lots of our enthusiast scholars from the past to, to come along and um, to uh, chair our session. So thanks, James, and all the, all the girls and guys who have come along to do that. Um, I'd like to say congratulations to our 12 new scholars that Jody announced today. Um, you know, wish them well in their endeavours. 2022, hopefully going to be a, a new year for all of us, and uh, hopefully we can get some scholars travelling the world. Um, Jen said, I don't know the word COVID's been uh, banned as yet in this conference, but, but the difficulties of COVID has certainly got uh, Nuffield uh, very active in the virtual, virtual world. I mean, we've gone from having interviews and presentations to conferences to uh, global focus programs being conducted uh, virtually. So scholars in the last 12 months have, have visited Kenya. I think they've been to Stu Barton's place once already. Um, They've been to the Netherlands, Brazil, Ireland, a corporate ag um, global focus session, as well as a trip to uh, Bayes facility in Chesterfield in the US. So we're certainly making the most of it. It's not a replacement for, uh, for, the, for, for the real thing, but, but the value of information is, is no different. And it's, it's a really important, probably nearly a more important thing in times like this. I just want to reiterate that, that Nuffield remains in a really strong position to sort of build the human, human capacity in Australian agriculture. So take the enthusiasm of the last two days, share the presentations, which as James said, will be available on YouTube in the next couple of days. We'll also make available Jess's illustrations, which um, are a really great summary of, of the presentations that occurred and, and feel free to use those um, in, in your organisations. I encourage everyone to work on our brightest and best in the ag sector to broaden their horizons and apply for a scholarship. Um, rebuilding connections in a world which has been shut down by COVID over the last two years is going to be very important. 
um, probably as important as it was 70 years ago when we sent scholars away uh, by ship and bicycle to uh, see what was happening on the other side of the world. It's no different today, getting out there, getting out of our comfort zone and being challenged and seeing things firsthand in what's happening in the ag world is important now as it was then. Um, before I finish up, I'd just also like to make note uh, that earlier this week at our AGM, uh, we announced that Terry Hare, Order of Australia, um, on his life membership of Nuffield Australia. So, you know, thanks to Terry, there's quite a few scholars out there who were, were under, Chewy, uh, under Terry's tutorship when he was chair of Nuffield and Terry's a real enthusiast for Nuffield and his life membership's well deserved. I'd also like to welcome Brian McAlpine, a 2003 WA scholar, as a new appointment to the Nuffield board. Um, I'd like to wish all the 20, 21s and 22 scholars, and effectively our, our stockpile of scholars that we have, um, all the best for their travels in 2022 and hope that when it goes smoothly and we do get traveling and we get back to some degree of normality. In closing, I'd hope to see everyone in person at our 2022 uh, National Conference, which is this stage is planned to be in Perth. Um, in the meantime, stay connected with Nuffield. Our state-based organisations are working hard to, to continue with activities when um, lockdowns allow. So thanks for your attendance. I hope you all enjoyed. It's nice to get a little field injection every now and then and find that it's just as enthusiastic as, as, as you remember it to be. So thank you and goodbye and thanks for your attendance. The Nuffield Australia Annual Conference was exclusively sponsored by Rabobank and CSIRO. Thank you to all our conference speakers and panellists. Links to their details are provided in the episode show notes. To listen to other conference sessions, make sure to subscribe. And to see videos of these podcasts, visit the Nuffield Australia YouTube channel. For more information about upcoming events, check out our Facebook page or visit nuffield.com.au. Thanks for listening.